It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. Hello to everyone. Welcome to the program. The matter of the will of God is one of the subjects at the very center of the experience of the Lord's people. In part two of this series, I have said that Christians need to be guided and directed by a compelling desire to do the will of God. This is the most foundational and essential pursuit in Christian living, doing the will of God. In part one of this series, I made some decisive statements regarding God's will. First, it is unfortunate that many Christians attempt to discover the will of God by using paganism's methodology, where they attempt to read the miscellaneous omens of circumstances. I said that this is the usual and most common approach of many Christians. Second, the passage of Scripture in Romans 12, 2 is foundational because it gives a proper biblical approach and indicates precisely how we should walk in the will of God. Paul says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. He is saying there must be a radical change in the inner man for one to live rightly in this age. What does the word radical suggest? As applied to human behavior, the word radical can either be positive or negative, depending on one's viewpoint. Whether or not Christians should be radical depends on how the word is defined. The 1966 edition of the Random House Dictionary of the English Language lists 14 different nuances to the word radical, with 12 synonyms. To discuss, the dictionary's definition would take me too far afield. So let me give this working definition of radical as it applies to human behavior. Radical describes an expression of strict adherence to a worldview that is at extreme odds with the cultural norm. In that sense, Christianity certainly is at extreme odds with the norm of secular humanistic view in Western culture. If normal is viewed in the middle of the descriptions of human behavior, then radical would be a person at either end of the spectrum. Mother Teresa could be considered radical in her extreme self-denial and ministry to the poor in India. But Osama bin Laden would be radical because of his vehement commitment to terrorism. Both are at the extreme ends of what most societies consider normal. Jesus would be considered radical because his message of love, forgiveness, and mercy 
was at direct odds with the accepted views of his day. He refused to fight back when attacked. He refused to allow Peter to defend him when he was arrested. He refused to condemn the woman caught in adultery. Those were radical acts for that time and culture. Jesus said that anyone who wants to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus expanded that by saying, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That is his command. The decision to follow Christ is itself a response to his command and a call to radical living. Jesus' command is at extreme odds with our flesh's desire to please itself. The Apostle Paul wrote, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin in my members. That's found in Romans 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus' command also challenges the world's wisdom, which advocates self-fulfillment as our highest aim. The Apostle John wrote, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, but the one who does the will of God will live forever. The cross is a radical thing, and declaring Jesus as Lord of our lives involves the dethroning of self and a complete abandonment to his will. We must be willing to go where he leads, do what he says, and love him more than life itself. I must exalt him to the highest place in my thoughts. I must exult in him as my highest joy. My commitment to him must be my highest cause for exuberance. One reason some people turned away from Christ was that his requirement of giving up everything for his sake was simply too radical for them. That's found in John chapter 6, verses 60 and 61. The scripture verses in 2 Corinthians 5 Verse 14, 17, 19, 20, 21, and 15 say, quotes, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. 
We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. There are several points implied in these verses, and I encourage you to listen carefully. First, from these verses, it seems clear that all died means a positional death, not an actual death, at least not yet. Second, this reconciliation of all did not guarantee the salvation of all, but the savability of all. So this is opposed to those who believe in universalism, that is, that all will be saved. Third, activity follows from one's nature, and the true believer receives a new nature, not just a good moral life. Fourth, reconciliation by Christ makes salvation possible. Verse 14, it is our faith that makes it actual. That fact is contrary to some Christian denominations' doctrine that justification precedes faith. Fifth, Paul goes on to say that on the basis of what Christ accomplished on the cross, he identifies the object of Christ's reconciliation with the world. Verse 19, not believers only or the elect. Again, this is contrary to what some denominations teach. Sixth, verse 15 contrasts those who live, Christians, with the all for whom Christ died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Verse 15. Seventh, the connection in verse 14 between the one, Christ, died for all, and the world in verse 19 is to show why Christ's love should compel us to reach them with the message of reconciliation, imploring the world to be reconciled to God, verses 19 and 20. Paul is teaching about Christian compassion for the spiritually dead world that needs to be restored to a right relationship with God. Colossians 3.10 says a true believer is one that has put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him, Jesus, who created him. So a Christian's behavior is expected to be radically different from his former behavior. We test the level of how far our mind has been renewed by how it affects our daily life. If we have some experience, and we never consider it in the light of Scripture, then the mind is not renewed enough, and we are not fully committed to following Jesus' command to take up our cross. The pagan way is completely different from the biblical way. There you must somehow tap into the divine will 
and transcend your human limitations to access the spiritual realm so that you can know what the Sovereign Lord, Creator of the universe, desires you to see what He has for you next. The pagan way is to circumvent the mind, turn off the mind, empty the mind, alter the mind, get away from the human realm and into what they consider is the transcendent realm until somehow they have what they think is an encounter with the divine. How do pagans apply their process? Fortune-telling is one way. Transcendental meditation is a second way. The idea of transcendental meditation is emptying your mind to get in touch with the divine. You have to get out of your human mind and in touch with the divine. So you clear your mind and you wait upon the divine to influence your empty mind. Pharmaceuticals is a third way. The Native Americans used peyote. Others used LSD or marijuana. Still others resort to alcohol. The idea is that you can take a drug that allows you to enter an altered state of consciousness and in that altered state, you supposedly transcend the human and the physical, and you tap into the divine to get guidance and direction and instruction. I doubt that everyone who uses drugs is seeking to determine the will of God, but merely looking for a so-called trip or to avoid a problem. You had one problem, but if you continue using drugs, you will have two problems, with addiction added to the first problem. Pagans would suggest to have your palm read as a fourth way to get in touch with the divine. Or you look for and read signs as if God is leaving you clues to direct and guide you. Like Margaret in Bruce Walkie's example, Margaret thinks she sees the signs and assumes God is obviously trying to let her in on what he is doing. The Bible has some clear instructions for his people, contrary to the pagan way. For example, consider Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination, witchcraft, or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Allow me to close this episode by reading a prayer and a challenge in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, 
and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott.